0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. where we're continuing our series, The Unseen Hand of God, today with a message entitled Providence. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 48, verses 1 to 8, as we join Dr. Neufeld now.
1: I have, on more than one occasion, spoken on the issue of providence, now, if you listen to me frequently, you're going to know that I love to speak about this matter. That's you know, that's because for me, it's a most precious truth. But I'm also aware that the matter of providence is not well understood. To put most simply, providence means that God governs all things. So we might consider Colossians 1.17, which says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, he in that passage refers to Jesus, the eternal Son, And the idea of holding all things together is actually quite a profound statement. The universe, according to this passage, is held together or continues to exist because at each moment, Christ wills that it should. Hence, all things that occur happen because of his expressed will, and they do. But of course, that leads to a question, what of evil that occurs? I mean, does he will that to occur? And here, in order to answer that important question, we must delve into what we mean by the will of God. Now, I've discussed these matters before, and so I will not repeat that here, only to say that when we come to the 45th chapter of the book of Genesis, we come to the very problem that we're speaking about. Did God will evil? Well, in order to answer that, we've got to consider the matter from at least two different vantage points. The first comes from 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That is, God is not about doing evil. Instead, he only does what is good. God does not will evil in the sense that he wants it and is looking for a way in which evil might be done. See, God is light and there is no darkness in him. And yet we can also confidently say that no evil would exist if God had not determined that he would allow it to exist. He wills evil in the sense that not only is he determined not to stop some evil from happening, but also he determines that the evil itself will be used against itself, or he wills that evil will attend to his long-term purposes. And that's why I've called this series The Unseen Hand of God. God's hand is always there, even in Joseph's suffering and slavery. But we might think, well, how can that be? I mean, sometimes evil is only evil and nothing good comes from it. Well, hold that thought for just a moment, and we're going to get back to Joseph. You know, this has been a lengthy series on the unseen hand of God, not only in Joseph's life, but also the unseen hand of God in Joseph's family. Now, Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery, and his brothers honestly intended evil. It was their desire to destroy his life. And in the meantime, through a remarkable set of events, Joseph has become the second most powerful man in Egypt, and now he's confronting his brothers, who've come to Egypt in a time of famine. They're desperate to buy food. And of course, Joseph could have executed them for spying, or at least enslaved them without explanation, but he doesn't. Indeed, his heart has been moved with love and compassion for his family. And in the process, Joseph has been testing his brothers. And after 20 years, who are they? Are they still the same vitriolic, cruel, take every advantage to simply satisfy their own wants? And now Joseph has just witnessed something that I'm not sure he believed that he could have seen. On the first visit, the brothers, not knowing he spoke and understood their language, spoke of their guilt in condemning Joseph. But now, the most shocking moment of all, it's reserved for this, the second visit. Judah, the very brother who once put the plan in place of selling Joseph into slavery, well, he now volunteers to be sold into slavery in place of Benjamin. Now, this is a moment that reveals not a man out for himself, but a man willing to lay down his life for his brother. And years later, Jesus, the greater son of Judah, would say, and I'm reading here John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So here now is Judah demonstrating such transformation that, according to Jesus' own words, show that Judah has the greatest form of love that anyone can have for his own brother Benjamin. So we come to today's text, and we begin by reading Genesis 45, verses 1 to 3. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I've heard some commentators suggest that the reason why he asks his attendants to leave the room was because he was concerned that no longer able to restrain his emotions, I mean, he's going to look unprofessional in their presence, and they would lose respect for him. Well, I guess that might be true, but I think that view of things really misses the issue. There are some things that are meant only for family, and Joseph is anticipating reconciliation. He's anticipating Things being said that can only be said in the context of family. No attendance. I mean, this is the moment that he must have thought would never come, and it's got to be private. But it's also important that in this act of asking the attendants to leave, that Joseph reveals to whom he actually belongs. I mean, even though his name has been changed and he's been made to marry an Egyptian woman, Joseph shows that he belongs to the covenant community of his brothers. See, Joseph, you might remember, is mentioned among the great heroes of the faith, which is found, of course, in Hebrews 11, verse 22. And that passage says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That is, Joseph's people the place where he wanted his identification, the people among whom he wanted to be buried, and the eternal hope that he had nurtured in his soul. I mean, all of these things belonged to the holy people of God. Even though he was still unreconciled with them, he dreamt about a time when it would no longer be so. And so Joseph, knowing the time that God has now given him, sends his attendants out and he begins to weep. And you've gotta believe that he's straining now in the language of the Hebrews, to tell his brothers who he is, but at first, all he can do is weep. The Egyptian officials, his attendants, who must still have been standing outside of the door, are hearing him weeping. And it might also have been that members of Pharaoh's court were there, and they also heard him weeping quite loudly. But inside the room, he's straining to speak. I am Joseph, he finally says, and then strangely, he adds, is my father still living? And I say that strange because as we remember... He has been asking about his father before. But of course, at that time, he's asking formally. And he doesn't yet know that the brothers are only answering in order to say the right thing, in order to appear innocent before the ruler of Egypt. But now in this emotional statement, he says, tell me as your brother, how is my father? You know, the ESV translation says that the brothers were unable to answer because they were dismayed in his presence. It's, it's an interesting choice of words, dismayed. You know, other Bible translations say that they were terrified in his presence. And still other translations say they were stunned. But I think terrified is the right word here because the Hebrew word used is used at other times in the Old Testament. You know, for instance, Judges 20, verse 41, uses the word, and interestingly enough, the ESV consistently translates that same word as dismayed. And Judges 20 uh, describes that time when the tribe of Benjamin was being defeated by the rest of Israel in what was then a civil war. So Judges 20, verse 41 says, Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Yeah, I know the ESV translation says they were dismayed, but clearly they were overwhelmed. They were terrified. They were unable to stop the events that were unfolding, events that would mean they would be utterly defeated. So I think that terrified is a good translation. And that's how we should understand the reaction of Joseph's brothers. You know, at first they would have been shocked, but then would come the realization of what this meant, and suddenly it occurred to them. God had not abandoned their brother when they sold him into slavery. God had richly blessed him far beyond their expectations. And now he was the man who had the power of life and death over them. Was he weeping in anger, in love, in frustration, in emotions that he himself didn't understand? What had just happened? They're dismayed. Yeah, they're terrified, horrified, alarmed, not knowing what to make of this frightening thing that has just been delivered into their laps. So before we move on, please notice that one of the reasons wrongdoers, one, often don't admit that they've sinned, and two, often deny the facts of what has happened, and three, go out of the way to make sure that the one they have wronged is further victimized you know, by slandering the victim even further. Well, the reason they do that is because they're terrified as to what should happen when the truth is finally told. All of that is what's going on here.
0: As a ministry team at Back to the Bible Canada, we'd like to express our incredible gratitude for your kindness and generosity in helping the ministry exceed expectations during our October one-for-one match campaign. Thank you for investing in Bible teaching across Canada. Your partnership helped realize the entire pledge goal, so thank you. What a faithful God we serve. And please remember to request your free copy of Dr. John's new teaching series on CD, The Adventure of Prayer. The series is made available this month only to anyone who asks, and it's Back to the Bible Canada's way of making quality Bible teaching available at no cost and investing in the spiritual growth of people across Canada. So thanks for all you do. And remember to receive your free copy of The Adventure of Prayer or to continue to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.
1: Joseph has just revealed himself to his brothers, and it's undoubtedly true. He is Joseph. You know, for the first time, they've heard the ruler of Egypt addressing them in their own language. Furthermore, up until now, they've only told the ruler that they have a brother who is no more. They've never used his name, but here now, it's the ruler of Egypt, and he says, I am Joseph. So they know it's true, but their minds are reeling in terror. So we read verse 4, and keep in mind that today we're only going to go to the end of verse 8, but in fact, Joseph's speech actually carries on all the way to verse 13. The brothers say nothing during his lengthy speech. They simply listen. They're afraid. They're terrified. They're stunned and overwhelmed. But even in that state, Joseph has, at least in the early part of this speech, four very important things to say. So we start with verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So notice that Joseph is not ready to overlook what they've done. You know, many people don't know this about reconciliation. True reconciliation never says, well, on that delicate matter, let's never talk about it again. No, no. Joseph is going to talk about it. You sold me into Egypt. Yeah, I'm the one to whom you did that. But it's just as important to notice that Joseph is not doing this as a point of accusation. Rather, he seeks to release them from the guilt that they felt for 20 years. And that's why before saying these words, he says, come near to me. You know, he doesn't want there to be a distance between them when he says those words. He wants them to share intimacy. Yeah, this is a thing that must be dealt with. But we will deal with this matter as brothers in intimacy with each other. That's the first thing that Joseph says. But the second thing, well, that gets us to the point of the matter. It's the matter of providence. You know, providence, that is, our understanding of providence, allows for reconciliation. You see, there really is no reason for the brothers to be terrified, because the brother who they wronged believes in providence. Look at verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You know, Bruce Waltke, I think, said it best. He said, Joseph directs their gaze away from their sin to God's grace. Now, yeah? it is grace that Joseph wants his brothers to see. So I imagine them here standing in a semicircle close to one another. They're huddled together, and Joseph is counseling them. Don't be angry with yourselves. Don't live forever under an experience of guilt and distress. Now listen, my brother and sister, I I know of people who have been wronged and are motivated by only one thing. I mean, they want the person or the people who have hurt them to feel guilt and to spend the rest of their lives paying for what they've done. They want the guilty person to feel what they felt when they were victimized. But Joseph believes in providence. God uses the evil that was done to me to place me in this position and right now I'm actively involved in saving lives all throughout the region. Many, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people would have starved to death had this evil turn of events not have happened. God willed me to be sold into slavery. And notice carefully that Joseph is not saying that the evil of selling him into slavery isn't evil. He is, however, arguing for God's providence. In providence, the God who sustains all things has willed that the evil would not be stopped or even impeded. He had determined that this evil, which was truly evil, would be used to save life after life after life after life, to offer up to people the grace of a loving God who cares for the lives of people. God is good to all. God blesses both the just and the unjust. God appoints means whereby people are given safety and life and gladness of heart. Hence, says Joseph, in this case, this, that is, my slavery is how God accomplished it. Now, we notice that Joseph has said two things. And the first is, let's not paper over your sin. You sold me to Egypt. But let's not spend our lives blaming for this evil was willed by God for the saving of countless lives. Even though this evil was evil, God willed that it should be allowed to occur so that this could now happen. The knowledge of God's unseen hand changes everything. Now, Joseph's third statement, and that's found in verses 6 and 7, "'For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors.'" See, notice how quickly Joseph goes from, you know, God's wider designs to God's designs among the covenant community of God's holy and chosen people, that is the family of Abraham. God who knows the end from the beginning knew that the family of Israel would perish unless he intervened on their behalf. And and throughout this study, we've noticed that. You know, we first noticed that the family of Jacob was consumed by jealousy and revenge, idolatry, you know, sexual sins, great many other sins. This is a family who are called to be God's holy people, and yet they were not holy. And then we also notice that this family was slowly being assimilated into the wider Canaanite culture so that, I mean, given enough time, they would simply be no more. And now we also notice that the, the famine raging through the land would have meant that Jacob and his family would simply have died. So from a wider vantage point, we should see that the evil one, that is Satan, is hard at work to destroy this family, and in so doing, he is at work to prevent the Savior of the world from coming and offering salvation to all who would repent and believe. Everything, everything is at stake here. Now, Joseph doesn't know all of that, but he does know, look again at what he says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant in all the earth. God sent me, God chose me to save our family. All these events are the unfolding of God's purposes. But even when Joseph was young, God even then was giving him dreams about his chosen calling. And all that had happened to Joseph was the outworking of God's wider purposes. He was securing the hope for a future existence of the people of God. Now, all that said within the backdrop of the fact that the famine had just begun. The family is a long way from being out of the woods just yet but Joseph is going to secure their future. So let's review again. Number one, you did a profound evil to me. Number two, in God's providence, this evil was his tool to rescue many lives. Now, number three, in God's providence, this evil secured the future of God's chosen people. And with that, Joseph adds one more point point. it's found in verse eight. It's his conclusion to this discussion of divine providence. Look, read verse 8 carefully, and if you take verse 8 to heart, I promise you, it's going to change your life. So here it is. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. I mean, consider the last part of the verse. You know, God says, Joseph has made me a father to Pharaoh himself. That is, Joseph realizes that he has become a father figure to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has come to rely on Joseph for, you know, for wisdom and for how to undertake action and as someone he can rely on. That, says Joseph, is who I have become after you sold me to Egypt. And that is to say, Joseph fell, but he landed on his feet. God oversaw that. I've been given a position, he says, that is the greatest position in the land. That's what I've become. And so here's Joseph's conclusion. You didn't send me here. God did. God did. Now, we might protest and say, wait a minute, it was the brothers who sold him as a slave to Egypt, and and it was they who deprived him of years of relationship with his family. Ah, but if we responded in that way, we've learned nothing about God's providence. See, God holds all things together. God wills all things. Even the evil that is done is willed by God in the sense that God willed that it be allowed to proceed. And that, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is why you can live free from anger and bitterness, free from an eternally wounded spirit, and free from a sense that things should have turned out better than they did. Not so. Things could not have turned out any better than they did, because God willed that they should be this way. But still, you might protest, but wait a minute. You know, I am glad things turned out so well for Joseph, but they haven't turned out that well for me. Uh, you're clearly not a man or woman of faith if you think that way. You know, there's an old saying that applies only to God's chosen people. If you'll not confess your sins and surrender to Christ, this doesn't apply to you. But if you surrender to Christ, know this, everything for God's people turns out well in the end. And if it hasn't turned out well, listen, it only means that it's not the end yet. Once you grasp God's providence, you can live in faith, you can live in freedom, You can live in reconciliation, and you can live in such a way that blesses as many as possible.
0: John, I don't know if this is an odd question or not, but when you think about providence, why is providence so necessary for us to be content, to be happy?
1: Yeah, and it really is necessary for us because... I think all of us know that life is filled with unexpected events. I mean, some of those of course are welcome and we'd be happy to say, you know, thank you Lord for having arranged those events. I would never have been able to plan for those. But as you and I know that there are many events in our lives that take us in an unexpected turn and leave us with a deep sense of either disappointment, even bitterness, uh, anger at people who have wronged us, all these things you get providence deeply in your heart and in your spirit. You begin to see that the hand of God is always at work, uh, providing for not only his glory, but he's interested in our long-term good so that our happiness in eternity would be enhanced and magnified. Now grasp a hold of that and it changes everything.
0: Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you been feeling tired, beaten down, and alone? If there's anything that the Bible tells us, it's that prayer is a powerful tool for the follower of Jesus. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada is dedicating November to pray specifically for you. If you receive our monthly ministry letter, there's a prayer note inside. You can return to our office and a team member will join you in prayer. Or if you'd rather, you can visit backtothebible.ca prayer and send your prayer request on a special confidential prayer page. Either way, we're praying for you this month. Prayer is critical to the ministry, so we want to share our prayer request with you as well together in prayer, God will do great things. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca backslash prayer to let us know how we can partner with you in prayer this month.